Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are continuing the denomination series and we are going into the Reformed tradition, which will be a little bit different because we're going to be packing a little bit more into one episode. Before we get too far, I want to introduce the music here. The music is by Jake Bond, also known as Thief to King. And if you haven't listened to his stuff, go listen to it. It's excellent. I'm pretty picky about what Christian music I actually enjoy, and Thief to King is one of the few that I regularly listen to. So go check him out and enjoy. Before we begin, remember that Christ the Cure is subscriber-supported. We need more subscribers to hit our ideal goal to go into Season 5. So if you believe that Christ the Cure is worth supporting, become a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Christ is the Cure. And prayerfully consider becoming a patron for a year, just commit to a year, and then whether or not you continue after that year is up, that's up to you, but it helps us get through the next year. So let's talk about the historical summary on the Reformed tradition. Again, double check my work. Remember that this is a broad overview, that these traditions are much deeper than this, and you can get more into those um, doctrines of emphasis or distinctives and flesh those out more. This group can be difficult because the Reformed tradition encompasses groups that are kind of hard to separate. So we're talking like Dutch Reformed churches and the Presbyterians. Here, we're going to cover them as a unit. Even at the outset, that could be kind of off-putting for either a Dutch Reformed or a Presbyterian, but that's the way I'm doing it. I'm treating the Reformed tradition as one unit, but I am not accounting for like the World Alliance of Reformed Churches. I think it's called something else now. They changed their name fairly recently. Basically, it's it's kind of like a communion of a bunch of different Reformed churches that also includes the Remonstrance churches, which is surprising to a lot of individuals. And if you don't know, the Remonstrance are the, the Reformed Arminians, as they would call themselves. So here we're going to cover them as a unit, the Dutch Reformed and the Presbyterians. And we're also going to talk about very briefly the Congregationalists that emerged from the Reformed tradition and then the Baptistic Covenantalists will come up, but we're not going to be covering them here. Um, the Baptistic Congregationalists would be the Reformed Baptist or the particular Baptists, but we're, we're going to cover them later, probably within the Baptist episodes, which I'm still not really sure how I'm going to break those up, to be honest. We're, we're going to have to work through those because Baptist is a very broad term. Now, because we're treating these as like a unit, this means that this could be a longer episode than others, but I want to keep it into one episode like we have with the others because it just, it just makes it a little bit easier. So at its base, the Reformed tradition is rooted in the Swiss Reformation. It is wrongly asserted that the Reformed, that is the label Reformed, as a class encompasses every group within the Protestant Reformation. It's true in a historical sense, but not in a theological sense. For example, to say that Lutherans are Reformed or that Anglicanism is inherently Reformed is incorrect. Reformed is a theological tradition. And this is one of those areas where the Lutherans and the Reformed can actually agree and be happy. They agree that one is Reformed, one is Lutheran. They're not the same. But that's important because sometimes people paint with this broad brush, well, Luther was Reformer, therefore he's Reformed. No, they're, they're different. So at the time of the Reformation, you had the Reformed traditions and the Lutheran tradition paralleling one another. And they are still understood to this day, as distinct. For example, you'll find videos from Lutherans saying why I'm not Reformed, and the same way on the other side, a Reformed individual saying why I'm not Lutheran, right? So the point is that Reformed is 
a specific theological understanding. And this should be kind of introduced with the caveat of Reformed can be a little bit more fluid beyond that distinctive, but it usually most commonly is associated with Dutch Reformed Presbyterians and individuals like that. Uh, and I say that because there are groups that are not Reformed in terms of they, they're not covenantal, like they're, they're dispensationalists and they wouldn't be part of the Reformed tradition because the Reformed tradition is historically covenantal. But then you'd also have the Reformed Arminians where on a theological technical grounds, they wouldn't be Reformed because they're not Calvinistic while the Reformed have been historically Calvinistic. But it gets more confusing whenever you have like the Remonstrants or the Arminians and the World Alliance of Reformed Churches. Generally, Reformed is known as those Calvinistic, covenantal, confessional churches, i.e. the Dutch Reformed Churches and the Presbyterians. The, the Congregationalists also would fall into that category. Whether or not Baptists fall into that category, that is the particular Baptist, that's a whole different debate. In general, we're talking about the theological tradition that came from the Swiss Reformation, distinctive from Lutheranism, and so that's, that's really where we're going. Of course, all that was a little bit extra. We didn't really need to talk about that. Um, so the Swiss Reformation is tightly connected to two men and two cities. The first is Zurich with Ulrich Zwingli, and then Geneva with John Calvin. Um, chances are, if you've been around the podcast, you've heard both of those names plenty of times. You've certainly heard Calvin's name in Geneva. Ulrich Zwingli was a major Swiss reformer at the same time as Luther, um, and they both played a key role. And like Luther, viewed themselves as Catholic ministers, not creating new churches, but establishing valid Catholic institutions according to the scriptures and in line with tradition. That is tradition in its proper place, subordinate to the final authority of scripture. So like the Lutherans, they have in common those five solas. Now, we're not going to go into all the big developments. We're, we're going to just survey the history like we have been. But in 1561, the Belgic Confession would be pinned. Uh, with the Heidelberg Catechism in 1563 following. These are the two forms of unity that initially designated the Reformed churches until the Synod of Dort, which responded to the Remonstrants or the Arminians. And then you would have the documents of Dort come out, that is, the, the canons of Dort, that would advocate for Calvinism and then would be included as another form of unity, making up the three forms of unity, that is, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the canons of Dort, these are the initial documents that can kind of designate the Reformed tradition. There are other confessions that were drafted up and written. These are the ones that are accepted in the Dutch Reformed tradition. At the same time, over in the United Kingdom, you had the tradition coming from John Knox, principally, and that is in 1648, you have the Westminster Confession and the Westminster Catechisms being penned. And these would make up the official documents of the Presbyterians. What can be said here, because I'm sure some people are wondering, the differences between the two um, streams of the tradition are pretty minimal, mostly on ecclesiology. Um, but during its development, the Reformed churches grew particularly in the Netherlands, Germany, England, Scotland, Hungary, Bohemia, and Poland though they were basically met with nonstop persecution until 1648. Initially, the tradition began as a magisterial tradition, sort of like Lutheranism. We talked about that, so I'm not going to rehash it. But the persecutions ultimately led to the Reformed tradition denying the divine right of the monarchs. Now, within this period of the Reformation, a brand of Anglicanism 
heavily influenced by the Reformed tradition known as the Puritans, emerged and would become widely influential to this day. They sought to reform the Church of England, and it was during the English Civil War that the Westminster Assembly met to deal with the disagreement over the Church of England's use of the Book of Common Prayer and English congregations. At this time, the Westminster Catechism and the Confessions and the Directory of Public Worship would be produced, and these documents would be the, the doctrinal standard in Presbyterianism in Scotland, England, and then later on in America. It was during this period that the particular Baptists, that is the Calvinistic Baptists or the Reformed Baptists, were also trying to seek out recognition, but they were persecuted. But we're not going to dwell there long, just giving that as a point of reference that they were in movement here. And they should not be classified as stemming from the Anabaptists, which were the radical reformers, but instead they came out of a congregational reformed movement. Within colonial America, the Reformed tradition actually became the most influential, especially with the Puritans and the Congregationalists um, and the Scot-Irish Presbyterians that had gone over to colonial America. It was the famous Reformed Congregationalists in America that we generally think of as sailing to America, though it wasn't exclusively this group, but they were the predominant group. But those communities really made a mark early on, especially with a high push in education, with many institutions being founded by those in the Reformed tradition, such as Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and so on. The tradition would also heavily impact literature, law, education, and even the American Revolution and government and many other aspects of life. The first American Presbyterians were founded in 1706, with the Westminster Standards being adopted officially in 1729, the primary dividing line between the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists was, as you can guess, ecclesiology. The details are in the name. The Congregationalists held to a congregational model. The Presbyterians held to a Presbyterian model, which we discussed in the first or second episode of this series. These distinctions actually did not affect cooperation between the groups. For example, in 1810, the American Board of Commissioners was formed, and that consisted of Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Dutch Reformed, and Associate Reformed churches. Over time, their Reformed tradition continued to grow with the inclusion of more Dutch immigrants and German Reformed churches, which eventually would be known as the Reformed Church in the United States in the 19th century. The issue of slavery and civil war had an impact on the Reformed Church in much of the same way as other traditions. That is basically you had divisions and gradual reunifications. And you see this particularly with the PCUS or Presbyterian Church in the United States, which was founded in 1876. By the 20th century, modernism caused turmoil within the Reformed tradition, as it did again with every group, especially with differences emerging on the topic of ordination of women and women pastors, and in the 21st century, the ordination of homosexuals. The same turmoils could be said of the Congregationalists. However, the Reformed or Pado-Baptist congregations are kind of a dying breed, and most of them ended up joining other fellowships. In 1983, the PCUS and the UPCUSA united to form the Presbyterian Church USA, or PCUSA. Tracing the movements within American Presbyterianism is kind of difficult for the reasons that one may have already encountered in this episode. Almost all of them include America or United States in their names, and that makes it kind of difficult. Joe Carter in his article actually says that it's the preposition that makes most of the difference. You have in the USA, of the USA, and the most significant groups are the Presbyterian Church USA or PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church in America or PCA, 
the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, OPC, and then the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, EPC. The PCUSA is the largest of the groups, with the PCA being the second largest. The PCUSA is regarded as both theologically and culturally liberal in its allowance of the ordination of both women and homosexuals, as they redefine marriage to allow for the blessing of same-sex ceremonies, and they have no explicit teaching stating that scripture is inerrant, they permit abortion, and they amended different aspects of the Westminster Standards for all of these different um, doctrines and others. On the flip side, the PCA, EPC, and OPC are all considered conservative relative to this. Joe Carter's article is helpful again. It outlines the similarities and differences. I'll link it again in the description for this episode. You can go read more. But these are only some of the conservative branches within the tradition, and there, there are others like the RPCNA or the RPCGA or the ARPC. You can go look those up. Um, differences between them are generally on small matters, uh, such as the ARPC has a position of allowing women deacons over and against some others, while the RPCNA is known for holding to a psalm-exclusive worship with non-instrumental worship. So they use psalms only with no instruments. So those distinctives between those conservative groups tend to be pretty, pretty minute. Now, whenever it comes to sources of authority for conservative reform traditions, the sources of authorities have been outlined already, but standing on the principle of the five solos, the reform tradition recognizes scripture as the final authority. For the Dutch reformed, you have the three forms of unity, that is the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort. For the Presbyterians, generally the Westminster Standards are the key documents, that's the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms, and all of these documents affirm Nicene Trinitarianism and Chalcedonian Christology, and usually each branch, such as the PCA, will have a document that is kind of like their legal structure and how they conduct their business and discipline, etc., now, the EPC and OPC has made some minor revisions in the Westminster Standards. I'm not really sure what those details are, but that's worth looking into. The PCA, however, retains the Westminster Standards unaltered with the Book of Church Order. The OPC also has a Book of Church Order. And like I said, both sets of documents reflect the teachings of the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and Chalcedonian Definition. The Books of Church Order, or BCO, contains the form of government, the rules of discipline, and worship that is adopted by those parts of the PCA. Now, the rest of this installment will focus on Presbyterianism, as articulated by the PCA and OPC at times, which basically means that if you want to learn about a different group like the RPCNA or the Dutch Reformed Distinctives or the Congregationalists, you'll have to go research that yourself. When it comes to polity or church government, as one can guess, the PCA follows a Presbyterian structure of church government. Again, we talked about that in the first episode, but the PCA describes it as a representative form of church government, and you can find that at pcapolity.com forward slash basics. I'll put all these things in the description again. A local church is governed by a session, that is a group of elders or presbyters who are elected by the members of a given congregation. Elders are generally distinguished between two types of elders. You have teaching and then you have ruling elders. Teaching elders are those who are commonly referred to as ministers or pastors, while the ruling elders focus more on shepherding and caring for a congregation. Together, the two kinds of elders make up a session, and that ensures a proper function of a congregation. They look over the congregation. Uh, pastors and representatives of local churches in a region form a presbytery, and representatives 
of presbyteries and local churches meet annually at what is called a general assembly. The general assembly committees and agencies help local churches combine their efforts and resources to advance God's kingdom more effectively. And that is from the same website. PCA Polity describes that there is a mutual relationship and that the authority of the lower court does not nullify the responsibilities of the higher court to review and control disputed matters such as referrals or appeals. Neither does the position of the higher court infringe upon the authority and the original jurisdiction of any and all lower courts. For the PCA specifically, there is a constitution that consists of the doctrinal standards, that is the Westminster Standards and the Book of Church Order, that includes the form of government, rules of discipline, and the directory of worship. Meetings are conducted according to what is called Robert's Rule of Order, which is a standard procedure of Parliament, which you can find at robertsrules.com. Now, when it comes to sacraments or ordinances, Presbyterians stress the importance of these sacred rites and view them as crucial and important symbols of God's grace, a means of grace for nourishing the believers and moving the church into unity. In terms of baptism, Presbyterians are paedo-baptists. They hold that baptism is a seal of the covenant of grace and that believers and their children are called to partake in the sacraments. The Presbyterian doctrine of paedo-baptism ties in not only a parallel of baptism and circumcision, but also has roots in covenant theology. Believers' children have an interest in the covenant and right to the seal of it and to the outward privileges of the church underneath the gospel, no less than the children of Abraham in the time of the Old Testament, understanding it all as being the substance of the covenant of grace, but administered differently before as circumcision, now as baptism. And that is from pcpc.org worship slash sacraments. In baptism, children are received into the communion of the visible church, being distinguished from the world and united to believers. Quote, by virtue of being children of believing parents, they are, because of God's covenant obedience, made members of the church, but this is not sufficient to make them continue as members of the church. When they have reached the age of discretion, they become subject to obligations of the covenant that is faith, repentance, and obedience. They then make a public confession of their faith in Christ or become covenant breakers and subject to the discipline of the church. Ligonier summarizes on baptism this way, quote, anyone who comes to faith as an adult and who has never received a valid baptism should be baptized according to the Westminster Larger Catechism 167. On this, all sides agree. Presbyterians, as much as Baptists, will baptize adult converts. But the Reformed view over and against the Baptist view is that children of at least one believer should be baptized as well, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28, section 4. Underneath the Old Covenant, children were considered members of the covenant community and were granted the sign of initiation into that covenant, which was circumcision. Underneath the New Covenant, the substance of the one overarching covenant of grace has not changed, only the administration has. Therefore, the children of believers are to receive the sign of initiation, which is now received in baptism. And they quote Genesis 17, 9-14, Colossians 2, 11-12, the Westminster Larger Catechism 35, and Acts 2, 38-39. In Presbyterian, the mode of baptism can be either immersion, but also sprinkling. Additionally, Presbyterians, by and large, reject baptismal regeneration. Ligonier continues, quote, Baptism is a visible word, a sign act, whereby Christ and his benefits are shown forth to believers and applied to them. Now, over and against the Baptist view, the Reformed view asserts that something actually happens in baptism, Grace is actually conferred to worthy recipients. And over against the Roman Catholic and Lutheran view, the Reformed view asserts that baptism does not regenerate, nor does it work through the automatic 
efficacy of the sacrament itself or in the precise moment of its administration. Instead, baptism works through the operation of the Spirit in his people, meaning that it can either precede faith or follow it. And they quote John 3.8 in the Westminster Confession 28.6. The sacrament is a sign and seal of cleansing from sin and engrafting into Christ. It is not simply an outward sign of an inward change. It is an act of God, a solemn promise to apply to worthy recipients the benefits signified in the sacrament, namely the promises of God's covenant. Moving into the Lord's Supper, the Westminster Shorter Catechism states, quote, The Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein by the giving and receiving bread and wine according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth, and the worthy receivers are, not after a corporal or carnal manner, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood with all of the benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace, end quote. The OPC describes that the elements are simply bread and wine, allowing for wine or grape juice to be used and ordinary bread, that is, ordinary versus unleavened. And it is the position of the OPC that, quote, we partake of Christ in the Lord's Supper, not physically, but spiritually, that is, by taking the bread and wine in memory of his death, the very words of Jesus, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you, means that we are blessed by the Holy Spirit in our hearts when we take the supper in remembrance of him. He is there spiritually by the Holy Spirit, end quote. The supper is a sign, seal, and means of grace for those who worthily partake. It signifies Christ's work. It binds us to Christ as a seal and it is a means of grace as food for our souls, helping us grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Presbyterians then argue for a real presence, but a real spiritual presence of Christ. Because of the Holy Spirit, believers have communion with Christ. Quote, We are drawn to Christ in his heavenly presence. At the table, believers commune with the exalted Christ, and we are fed and nourished by him. Christ meets us in communion, and he gives himself to us, nourishing our faith. The bread and wine remain bread and wine, but there is a real relation between the signs of the bread and wine with the life-giving virtue of Christ's body and blood when we eat and drink in faith. And that is from... The Lord's Supper, an overview from Trinity Johnsontown's uh, Presbyterian blog. Again, I'll link all of these in the description. So what about the distinctives? The distinctives within Presbyterianism or the Reformed tradition at large can be summarized again by those three C's. You have covenantal, Calvinistic, and confessional. And you could also say that their view of ecclesiology is unique as well. The Reformed tradition are formally confessionally Calvinistic and covenantal, and this can be said as particular Baptists who hold to a Baptistic covenant theology and Calvinism. In addition to this, Presbyterian is marked by its polity in that elders preside over congregations with only assemblies or groups being above such rather than an Episcopal office. It could also be argued that Presbyterian is distinctive in its position on the sacraments, with paedo-baptism, it is distinctive in its stress on covenant theology. It's, it has more of an emphasis on this covenant theology than I've seen in other traditions, but it also rejects baptismal regeneration that these other traditions have whenever they affirm paedo-baptism. So in that way, it's distinctive too. It's also distinctive in that it maintains a real presence of Christ in the supper without literalism, and it also maintains both sacraments as a means of grace. They actually do something in terms of emphasis, which will be pretty short, the distinctives kind of are the emphasis in a lot of ways. There's a big emphasis on the sovereignty of God and monergism in salvation because of Calvinism. 
And God's sovereignty is not only emphasized, but the complete necessity of grace in all matters of salvation and God's unconditional election, particular atonement, irresistible grace, and preservation of his saints. Additionally, there's a great deal of emphasis on the continuity from the Old Testament into the New Testament via the covenant of grace. And there's also a great emphasis on the necessity of the marks that make up a valid church. That is the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, and discipline according to the scripture. And that emphasis on continuity does come out whenever you start seeing interfaith dialogues between, say, like the Lutherans and the Presbyterians, which Calvinists and Lutherans have kind of butt heads on a number of issues over the centuries. And so I don't want to open any cans of worms on that topic right here. So I would just encourage you to go look into those distinctions. You can probably find articles from both sides saying, hey, this is the distinctive of the Reformed tradition from the Lutherans and vice versa. And you'll see kind of how their emphasis can clash at times. And so that's going to wrap up our section on the Reformed tradition. Um, again, that broadly covered uh, the Dutch Reformed, the Presbyterians, and the Congregationalists with more, more focus on the Presbyterians. So you may want to go do that independent research on either of those groups within Presbyterianism that we didn't look at, or the Dutch tradition, which is a rich tradition, and the Congregationalists, which are a little bit harder to pin down um, nowadays, but you can still look into them and see how they differ. So until next time, God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. I really hope that this series is edifying for you. I know it's very broad, so hopefully you're getting something from it. You're getting kind of oriented on, you know, what questions to ask about a particular tradition, maybe. Uh, maybe knowing these emphasis, for example, can give you a place where, like, I can Google this now because now I know what I'm looking for. So I really do hope that it's helpful in that way in some shape or form. But until next time... Have a great week, and that's it. Deserving of death, condemned we stood. Now reconciled through his blood. For the wages of sin we could never atone. Oh, none could repay but Christ alone.